and we are live the date is december 20th 2022 christmas is just around the corner uh we hope all of our students are already enjoying themselves having a a great winter holiday break um before we end the calendar year myself and uh, professor oates here wanted to um kind of recap um some of what we've been working on this past semester uh one topic in particular concerns a, a, a proverbial lump of coal that <laughs> ended up on uh in professor oates's stocking and um it's relevant to this podcast because this is, of course, concerns the course evaluation for the ME seminar class, um, which is, again, relevant to the podcast because um, one of our uh, central themes of discussion that we like to bring up is not just the successes of uh, our endeavors here at the department, but also uh the sh- relative shortcomings and failures and uh by no means was the course of failure this semester but we got some interesting feedback would you like to tell us more about that professor oh, yes yeah. yeah and i wonder if this is the first time at least here if we had nailed down or drilled down to college of engineering it may be the first time that anyone's come on a podcast and read out their course evaluations from um prior courses um you know actually i had learned and you know for our two student followers that listen to our podcast um only the faculty that is in that class they only see these comments uh oftentimes the the students think oh this goes to other administrators that can then give more feedback to the students you know based on what they see that's not true um according to collective bargaining agreement and blah 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 those things so um i'm just gonna make them all public right here and and by the way so these are totally anonymous i don't want to give up any um uh who who wrote what uh, i don't know who wrote it um i'll even paraphrase some of these things just to make sure that it's it's clear that it's not anyone that um there shouldn't bring out any um identity in students and so as as neil mentioned we really like, or at least I really like, talking about the failures. Uh, we had some successes, I think, and overall statistics were pretty good uh, overall. But um, when you drill into the things where there's there's really, let me let me read this. I gotta take my glasses off here. But um, what aspects of the course and or William Oates's instructional methods could be improved? that would enhance your learning. Please give examples. So that's one, and then they say, please list any additional comments or suggestions. And so those are the ones that I really like. Um, you know, it, it's always good. The, the, the other question is, what aspects of the course in a William Oates instructional methods have you found to be most useful, valuable, or for learning? I do like reading those because that strokes my ego a lot, and those always feel great. <laughs> Um, but, you know, after a day or two of reflecting on the others, um, those are the ones where you, you really get to decide, can you, can you look at those objectively and uh, understand where did I fail these students? How can I do better to enhance the class? And so 
let me just well first I'll give you background if if you're not familiar with our, our seminar it it's pretty much like any other seminar we, we have some technical talks I also bring in a few people associated with leadership professional development entrepreneurs people from uh, upper administration we, we've had some great really great guests like former NIH director National Academy of Science we've had um, uh, other people that have long careers in leadership and um, and then of course I give my own Jocko Willink perspective extreme ownership um, maybe that's not for everyone but we'll, we'll get into what I mean by that and I think that may be some of the failures that have have occurred that I, I just I accept maybe I just need to get up every day and do 100 burpees and that's just normal <laughs> um, and then all the things associated with certain types of leadership styles and I could probably do better on that and so before we get into that let me let me just read you a few of the things where I could improve upon so these are some of the comments here and let me let me just jump into the one that uh, probably was the most direct I would say <laughs> um, I like the idea of professional development presentations but I find presentations on leadership to be a waste of time. Seem like there's never anything that you haven't heard from a high school coach that I haven't heard a million times before. Um, I would much rather go into professional development presentations like networking, effective presentation practices, interview skills, general career career building topics. I believe these types of talks would be much more beneficial for students. Very direct. And so the first time I, I read something like that, I'm like, oh, my. Uh, yeah, I, I really could have done a better job in talking to the, the students about my perspective on leadership and, and why it's important. And it's probably a lot easier for me because I have to deal with this on a daily basis, so maybe I'm thinking about it a lot more than they are. Um, and my first thought was, well, when I was a student, I never thought about leadership. But after I reflected on that more, that really wasn't true. Um, I'm not pure mathematician, I'm not a theoretical physicist or English lit, um, or places where I would think you could probably work on your own a lot more. Um, but then even in those cases, that means, well, you're going to do some work, and then whatever you do, you're going to put it in the drawer. No one's going to see it which is not the case. And so um, I guess everyone has a little bit different perspective on leadership, and mine is more than just being a leader of some organization and being executive, making sure everyone is doing their job and uh, judging them. I think it goes a lot further than that. Yeah, that that's one example. However, there's a lot more uh, nuances to it than that. But you don't have to be a leader. You can be um, part of an organization, wherever it is within that organization, or you could be the first person that's coming in. So you can lead from the front, the side, or the so rear. So you don't have to be the head of a hierarchy is what yeah. you mean to say. Yeah, and, and so, you know, I, that's, I think, where knowing good leadership skills is even more important. So if you're coming into an organization, you don't know the personalities, you don't know the culture, 
Um, you don't know how to operate, so what do you do? Do you just sit back and, and watch and wait, or are there better ways to engage? And I, I've always said to anyone, if when, when you're brought into a new organization um, and there are things that doesn't seem quite right or you don't see the perspective on it, you just ask earnest questions about, hey, does it make sense that we're doing things this way? I'm trying to understand this better. Can you help me um, appreciate why we're going in this route? And um, there's roughly two kinds of leaders. One could say, look, you just need to get in line and do what I tell you to do. Or the other one is they're going to see your perspective and say, oh, I see why you don't understand this. Here are the reasons why we do this. Um, and then it's like, oh, okay, that makes sense. So you're going to lead us on leadership now uh, with that in mind. Um, because, it, oh, this is not a universal feeling. It is clear that um, for some, the non-academic content of the semester failed to resonate with some students. Yeah. And yeah. those are the ones we want to reach. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I do think there is value in, in this feedback. So with that in mind, um, you know, I, I guess since we, we are rooted in engineering and the, the people who uh, are more technically minded, um, you know, how would your definition of leadership uh, apply to the average engineer, say someone maybe not in academia, someone in industry? Why is it essential for the engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, balls on your yeah, answer. It's a good question. Um, I always fall back to keeping things really simple. And so if you're an engineer, you're usually highly technically competent. You know a lot of information, how to synthesize physics, mathematics to create and design things. And sometimes the thought is then, why doesn't everyone else understand this this right and so there's a lot of levels to to understand there and parse out to communicate those skills but um, the biggest one is dropping the ego and having humility so you can talk to others so you understand their perspective and that's where the communication skills come in that's where building relationships come in and you know like I said if you're not pure mathematician you have to work on teams to, to do these things as an engineer and being able to have those communication skills will help your team accelerate or be successful so much faster. So, I mean, just be humble, and usually everything else will work out. Yeah, so um, with that in mind, I mean, what do you think, are there any concrete strategies we might try next time to better reach students regarding uh, uh, mm-hmm. the, mm-hmm. the the immediate value in mm-hmm. these in professional development and soft skills. What what, what have you? Yeah. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah, that and that is a hard one. I think the the key word there is immediate, right? Because you you don't see just this in leadership. When when I'm in the classroom, too, you know, students often want to see specific examples, of things. If you make things too abstract, they can't catch on. And often I'll I'll start with examples. But then being able to connect those examples with something they haven't seen that may be a very similar problem, and you can't make those connections. 
and so if you if we come back to this this one comment where they they talk about and I think this is one place where Neil and I had some uh, interesting different perspectives is um, the the student was interested in learning more about networking as one example or interview skills and so maybe I talk too abstractly on saying oh as a leader you need to build good relationships um, you need to learn cover and move and so you may think oh I'm not I'm not a Navy SEAL uh, I'm, I don't believe in cover and move and then I would say uh, okay so you're only worried about yourself you're not worried about anyone else you're going to take care of yourself um, <laughs> obviously not a good move um, other ones are that idea of detach and so can you step back from the problem and not just look at things uh, from uh, perception from your own projection or your your the way that you perceive someone's acting but can you see the perspective of this other person and uh, that goes for me too so I didn't quite capture that when I talked to the students and said, hey, you really should understand these things because even if you're not a leader, well, you may not even realize you're not a leader. If you're working in a group doing research, if you're working with people, working through homework problems and things like that, then these skills really pay off. Well, and, and as you know, research is not conducted um, in a silo within ourselves. I mean, this is a completely interpersonal uh, enterprise, um, but that which involves you know longstanding uh, professional relationships. So maybe we could emphasize the role of mediating relationships uh, as they pertain to the research process. Mm-hmm. Um, that might. Um, that might kind of tie it together better for our students yeah. to, uh, to help them understand that it's not just about you and your grade um, or, or your degree or your career path. That this is all this this even at the student level is a collaborative process that it, it does involve um, a, a certain degree of self ownership and you know thus. Uh, the need for leadership, even if the only person you're leading is yourself. Um, that is true, and often that is the hardest one to do, holding yourself accountable. And I think I may have even talked about this on the podcast, but, um, you know, um, when I get an, an, an email about something, it is so easy, you know, You maybe 100 emails a day, but just that one, can I just blame this other person on that, you know, instead of saying, no, I could have took extreme ownership to um, take care of that problem instead of blaming it on someone else. And so it always starts right there. Um, you take ownership in these problems, personally leading yourself, holding yourself accountable, that's usually the hardest. That's a learned process. I don't think that comes natural to most people because the impulse that you discuss when you say you read an email, and the, the, it does seem that we, we just, again, you, you mentioned that leadership starts with the removal of ego. 
because ego is the first and most pressing barrier to any social interaction because it does seem our, our gut reaction to so many so much negative stimuli is just eh, deflect push it onto someone else uh, who else can I blame for that and that's where our brains naturally tend to gravitate we uh, we think we are awesome and everyone else is stupid. That's kind of... I mean, even and, if no one actually thinks that. but Yeah, and it's a dichotomy too, right? Because if these, these we try to advise the students, or let's say even in my case, when I applied to FSU, then I put in my resume and I thought I was better than everyone else, so I should be a faculty member here than all the other 100 or 200 applicants, right? Um so there's this dichotomy that you have to sort out and figure out when to use the ego in the right way um, without destroying a team that you're working on. And another example of that that I use so many times, whether it's in front of the classroom or particularly when I'm in meetings, if we have to solve some problem, I have my own idea on how to solve that problem. One thing I rarely will ever do is go into a meeting and say, okay, we have this problem, here's the solution, here's how we're going to do it, you just need to go execute it. There's a good chance that there's something that I haven't thought about and someone's going to raise and show that I was wrong, and I don't like being wrong. (laughs) I have a big enough ego that I really don't like being wrong, and so that's a place where, you know, you go into a meeting or you're, you're working in your group with your friends or maybe it's solving homework problems. And um, if you don't want to look wrong, you, you ask the group, it's like, hey, how do you think we should solve this problem? And then there may be a lot of suggestions and maybe you've already worked out this problem and then things line up with what you've done. It's like, okay, yeah, I agree. Move on, next problem. Or they bring something to light you didn't think of. And then you're like, oh, you know, I didn't think about that. I need to adjust what what I was my plan was. Let's let's go with your plan. So I don't get my ego bruised, and they take ownership in the solution. Well, if your openness to experience includes an openness to to constructive feedback, uh, you can save yourself a lot of uh, uh, disappointing surprise later down the road. With that in mind, um, would you say you are open to students bringing these these criticisms to your attention prior to the end of your course evaluation? I mean, is this the kind of feedback you as a professor, as a faculty member, want to hear? Uh, in process um, and, and does that is that valuable to you at all because I know there is a certain degree of programmatic you know scheduling that we mm-hmm. that, that goes into putting this specific course together but if someone were to make a compelling argument to you uh, you know midway through the semester that you know, maybe might make you rethink your mm-hmm. uh, game plan mm-hmm. um, is that something that you're willing to receive from your students because it sounds like there are some that you maybe weren't aware of this and it, it, this this would this is valuable information now but it would have been more valuable 
you know, two months ago, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we could have, you know, perhaps shifted gears. What are your, do you, do you, do you agree or? <clears throat> um, yes and no. So one thing in general, yeah, I always want feedback early and often. I like avoiding my blind spots. Uh, again, I don't like having my beat wrong or having my ego bruised. Or, or number one, I want to provide um, good seminars for the students. Um, but I also want them to be aware of what's important. We try to reflect that and provide some, some good information so when they leave here, they're in a good shape. Um, yeah, there are some programmatic things. Um, we have seven or eight scheduled right now. Uh, only one on leadership. Um, and I, I, I do want to point out, these were just a few comments versus the, the relatively... Um, broad number of students that seem to enjoy all the talks um, but you know we don't want to ignore some of these things and, and, and make sure that all the students get a good experience so um, of the of the additional slots that are open yeah we'll we'll look at those things and figure out who's the best folks to to bring on and uh, present to the students well, you, you did make a comical comparison to um, when you ask your when you would ask your younger children when they were oh. younger about <laughs> you know what what they want to have for dinner or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It would be you know donuts and sweets or, yeah. or some such. Yeah. And uh, you know we, we, we do have to be cautious when we ask our students exactly what you know what, what they want. Uh, to get out of uh, out, out of a course because while it is valuable, um, uh, the folks who do have uh, years of experience, uh, you know, might know something that the students do not uh, about what's most valuable to them because you know. Uh, just because it's something you want to have every night for dinner doesn't necessarily mean it's what's good for you, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though it might feel good uh, at a given moment. So as this applies to the course, I mean, there's mm-hmm. that to keep in mind. Yeah, so I brought this up to uh, some of the senior faculty this week. And, yeah, I want to get your thoughts on this. And um, so actually... One of them had a really good suggestion that we are going to do. So we're going to bring back a few recent alumni that have gone off, been successful. Um, one, I forget his exact position, um, but he oversees a, a large group in the educational department across Florida. And he got his definitely master's, maybe Ph.D. from here, mechanical engineering. And so I think he'll have an interesting perspective. And so we do want to look at some of the younger alumni that haven't been gone too long and bring them back to give them, our students, their perspective on what what they think they should know. I, I think they'll probably be more receptive to that. Um, one of the other feedback from one of the senior faculty was, um, he said, yeah, I know who these students are. They're all mine because they've told me about these things, and so I'm not surprised at this. And he says, you know, you should just give them give them what they want. Let's just uh, give them all technical talks. And that's where the discussion on, I said, well, I've tried that with my kids, you know. 
what do y'all want to eat for dinner? Chocolate cake or donuts tonight, <laughs> right? Um, so that was being a little facetious, but um, the the idea there that I think the broader thing that we talked about earlier is whether you know you can brush these things or push the kick the can down the road on leadership. You know, once I'm done building my career, uh, being highly technical, um, then later I may oversee programs as a manager and it's at that point where I'll start thinking about leadership and so um, you know if you then rewind back to where uh, students are now as undergrad or or graduate and uh, you have that one donut right okay you can process carbs pretty pretty good I had my share donuts but you know if you stay on that path and you continue accumulating along that path, it's hard to get off that path much later and get in shape and and do all those things from the physical side. And I I think the same thing goes with leadership. If you kick the can and you don't think about those things early on and really practice like like we talked about, um, practicing how to drop the ego when you're working with people, it's not something you can just snap your fingers and later on when you've built your ego up so massively that you can all of a sudden change and be a a humble um, leader that is much more quick to listen and slow to speak with others. It just doesn't work that way. (laughs) Yeah, no. So in other words, uh, we need to start incubating these soft skills earlier to ensure a better pathway to success throughout the course of one's academic and professional career. Yeah, and career, it, it doesn't mean? it doesn't have to be you know go take a bunch of MBA class or business class or, or whatever. Is just in, in introducing these things into your your everyday interactions with whether it's staff like working with you or your fellow students, talking to your advisor. You know if you're intimidated by some big shot professor. How do you ask those earnest questions? You know, you may not feel comfortable doing that, but if you are really genuinely trying to understand something, then you shouldn't feel ashamed at all to go and talk to faculty or whatever. Um, and but it it does it does take dropping your ego to go and say, hey, I don't understand this. I need some help. And so um, those things can help so much just to help you learn the technical things. So you had, uh, relating to this discussion, you had some, some articles you wanted to oh, yeah. to bring up. Is this a good time? Yeah, to, so to um, I'm, I may be a little late in the game on this, but a week or two ago, my postdoc come to me and he said, oh, have you heard of uh, chat GPT? It's like, no, what is what is this thing? Um, so it's it's part of OpenAI, uh, Elon Musk, and I, I think a few other people had funded and started this thing several years ago. I remember when that first came out, and I was like, okay, and then I moved on to whatever else I was doing and didn't think about it. And so I guess over the past few years, they've trained this monster AI to do all these interesting things. So my, my postdoc said, yeah, I can present it at our group meeting on Friday. And so he brings this thing up, presents it on the uh, projector, and he just types in something like, 
write me a MATLAB code that will uh, import two-dimensional images, stack them into a three-dimensional image, and run a fractal dimension calculation, entropy dimension calculation on this. And you see this little thing turning for like five, ten seconds. And then all of a sudden, code starts typing onto the screen. That is unreal that it's that and advanced. And it's, it's not just the code, but it's commented so you can understand what all the lines are. And he runs it, and I'd say 90 or 99%, uh, quite a bit of the time, it always works. Every once in a while, it won't work because, at least for the examples he's done in MATLAB, some of the functions may be outdated. And so if that happens, you get an error in MATLAB. You just paste in the uh, MATLAB error and say, hey, I've got a problem here. Fix it. And the uh, AI will say, oh, sorry about that. Here's a new code with a corrected line that you're talking about. And often then it will run just fine. So then I said, well, ask it to write a poem. And cranked out a poem. As an engineer, I can't judge whether it was good or not. It did rhyme. <laughs> okay. Um, and then I said, okay, uh, ask it to tell the joke. And so it spit out a joke. Was I don't, it funny? I don't think Dave Chappelle has anything to worry about yet. Okay. Uh, this is one of the, uh, I'd say, average dad joke. It's, it's at, um, oh, why is the math book sad? Why? It has lots of problems. <laughs> so it needs some work there, but it yeah. was a legit joke. Yeah, it's not right? going to be winning the Mark Twain prize anytime soon, but yeah. that's it still yeah. made me chuckle. So Yeah, and so I brought this up to Neil today because after this, I started talking to a few folks and some of my colleagues at other universities, uh, like in the math department, they said, yeah, we've heard about this. Maybe suboptimal for education. We can we can talk some more about that. I have some thoughts there. Um, but last night I was reading the latest Scientific American, and you know, in the front they'll often have um, letters to the editor about the prior um, uh, prior uh, set of articles in the last month's edition, and one of them was talking about some. Some AI had written a journal paper or journal manuscript about itself. I was like, oh, sounds interesting. And then I realized it was referring directly back to this. Um, they call it chat GPT-3. I'm not sure what the differences are in the number, but um, pretty sure it's the same system. And so I, I read this article last night. I was mentioning it to Neil before and uh, it was basically a, a grad student and a professor or her advisor they asked this AI to write a paper technical paper about itself um, put in the intro put in the references citations everything proper order and it just writes this thing and um, I'm forgetting I let me let me see so I have have it in front of me and so I don't know if I can pronounce her name correctly or not but let's see this come out of the uh, what's volume 327 which month is this not, oh it's in September September so that's a few months old but yeah still yeah relevant. it's a little a little dated than I thought um, 
but uh, it's, uh, st- I think, a student uh, department of psychi- psychiatry at Salgrenska University Hospital in Sweden, a, a PhD student, um, uh, neuroscience and physiology uh, at Gothenburg University. Um, so maybe she's affiliated with both. Uh, Almira Thunstrom. Anyway, so she's going through this, and the the AI generates the technical paper, and they're trying to figure out what to do with it, and they want to put it out in to the general public to get this discussion going to understand, you know, what what we should do with this. You know, should we use it, you know, just as a tool, like we use codes to crank out calculations or computers uh, and search algorithms to, to do things for us. And so they were putting it together to submit to uh, uh, a journal, and, you know, you have to put all the authors in, and then you have to get all the authors to agree or be aware that you're going to be a co-author on this paper. And then there was a ethical dilemma on, well, what, what should we do about this AI being the lead author? And so she did the basic obvious thing, go back to the chatbot and t- ask it. Yeah, so ask just type it in. Say, do you want to be the lead author on this paper? And she was a little worried if it said no, because then game, game over, right? <laughs> and it didn't. It said yes, for whatever reason. So I don't know how the algorithm does it flip a coin or what's going on in the background. Of course, my, you know, I'm sure you gathered this based on my, our talk with, with uh, Christian and Professor Grizzle, but, you know, of course, my, my thought is, yeah. is it sentient? Answer, probably no, but... Uh, well, I was going to say, circle back to leadership and say, has it built an e- its own ego? It's like, yes. of course I should take credit for this. Yeah, like, Maybe well, that's the same as I sentient. wrote it, so yes. <laughs> uh, well, that's the question. Is it sentient? Or t- yeah. Tomato, tomato? I don't yeah. know. I mean, if it has an yeah. ego... it. You could argue that it has a conscience, yeah. um, but nonetheless, uh, it, it it affirmed that it did indeed want to be, yeah, listed. Yeah, uh, and I, I think the article ended there. Um, I don't know where that ended up. I haven't searched since then. Uh, maybe it got accepted. Maybe they don't know what to do with it. Uh, so it raises lots of questions. Um, the the one thing that since then just. An hour or so ago, I was talking to my postdoc again about the the same article, and um, one thing he also mentioned is he said, oh, well, there's another website you can go to, and if you think uh, ChatGPT created a paper, you can copy it and put it into this website, and it said it's 99% accurate that it will tell you, yeah, GPT wrote this paper. How do they how do they figure that out though? That it's not uh, it, it's like accurate. it's like creating new industries Did they spy use versus spy. You know, it's like we have Turnitin that we've been using forever. I guess so. And there's these human language processing algorithms, I guess. I I, I don't know the details um, behind them. I, I know that's a pretty big field. Um, so there there are ways to police it. I mean, the one I had brought the, at least the human language processing up to the faculty some time ago because I remember there was a DARPA project where a DARPA program manager had said, um, 
you know, so many papers are being published these days in these technical areas, and I just simply do not have the time to read all of them. Could I create an AI that has the proper human language processing to read the papers for me, extract causal cause and effect out of these, and summarize it so I can get the gist of this field? And then once I have that, then I can go back and dig into the details. Um, I'm forgetting the name of that that program, but um, it was fairly successful. And I could see now where there's just so much information out there. I asked my PhD student, I said, maybe you should ask this AI, hey, I'm working on a PhD in this area. I need to do a literature search. Can you tell me the top 20 papers, influential papers in this field? and see if you've missed any. So it could turn into uh, librarians. I don't know if they're in trouble. Um, I've I've heard that they've, and maybe I'll get your opinion on this. Uh, I can't remember where I heard about this recently, but I I heard degrees in librarian science has started to go up. So I wonder down the road from now, will we have better resources from people trained in that area? Because there's... There's just so much information these days. How do you find people to help you navigate just so much information? Well, um, my perspective, of course, is the, is the layman's uh, perspective, which is only worth what it's worth. Yeah. But uh, in that regard, I mean, one, one, one simple explanation for why you may be seeing more people pursuing library science degrees. I actually have a friend uh, in New York who is going back to, she's going to grad school for a degree in library science, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, that she had gotten her other degrees in um, creative writing, uh-huh. and uh, the, so it's interesting that she's going toward that field. But um, it's it has gotten easier. I mean, the, the same tools that help us, whether it's AI or just something as simple as you know the Google search uh, or Wikipedia. Um, those resources, which weren't really available, certainly not in the robust form that they are available today, twenty years ago are, as you, as you indicate, it's all over the place. So the tools that we use to help us gain more information are, I'm assuming, being utilized in uh, probably a more focused capacity by uh, library scientists. Um, and it, it probably helps to... It, it probably does make that field um, more accessible to the average person and therefore more desirable... Um, yeah, uh, but let me, let me ask you this. So would you say if you're, let's say, on the extreme side, you're searching something associated with politics, would you trust putting something into Google or asking a library scientist about an objective view on this particular topic? Um, I don't really have a straightforward answer to that because uh, you know my, my brain then splits into multiple tangents. Um, I would sooner ask uh, a librarian, sure. I mean, it's, of course, easier to just go to Google, and that's what most people do. But, um, but for somebody who's been trained in, in the curation of information, uh, sure, if I, given the opportunity, I would rather... Uh, have a uh, a trusted librarian uh, guide me in the dire- in the correct right direction, and I would hope that they would use the best tools available to them to uh, make those determinations. So uh, yeah, I guess any any 
search or feedback you get is it's not going to be perfectly unbiased. Um, not in today's age. But, that's the you know, when you type, start to type things into Google, it often tries to finish your statement and always wonder how biased those things are. Well, you know? sometimes it is frightfully accurate, though, because sometimes I'll be, be thinking uh, a question that I, on just any random subject that I want to ask, and I'll type in the first three letters, and it, it literally just completes my thought for me. And it says, how did you do that? And uh, some of that maybe, uh, you know, if you want to get conspiratorial, put the, the tinfoil hat on, could makes me wonder um, how closely our devices are picking up uh, cue words in our uh, in, in our everyday conversation. It, it, it doesn't seem to be quite a coincidence. But uh, yeah. uh, regarding Google, it's actually very comical. We mentioned we're talking about this right now because uh, I in my browser right this second, I typed in. AI GPT The Atlantic because I had actually read another article about it in The Atlantic uh, mm-hmm. recently and was mm-hmm. trying to look it up. Well, the first two results under news are two articles published two weeks ago. So basically, they were published within a couple of days of each other, if that. And they both um, <laughs> they both say uh, the, the first one is Will Chat GPT kill the student essay, which you know goes mm-hmm. to what we were mm-hmm. just talking about. But then the next one is Chat GPT is dumber than you think. So same two articles. Same publication, same time frame of publication, uh, diametrically opposed implications. So, um, and that that goes, and, and that's kind of um, is in line with what you were just saying about the mass availability of information. I mean, uh, a lot of these media outlets uh, they've just they've discovered that it's it's in their their interest to uh, have to broadcast as many disparate ideas as mm-hmm. possible. Um, so you really do have to be mindful when you are doing your own research using the tools available to you. Um, well, speaking so of when you said dumber than you think, I think I mentioned to you we also put in some unsolved math problem into the chat GPT, and it spit out some answer. But did you check we, it? Oh yeah, we knew, we knew it was not right, and we we put in oh no, this is not the right answer, and it said oh sorry my bad <laughs> or something like that, and then tried to s- circle around the fact that it got it wrong. Um, so yeah, you you know we we had Carl Bergstrom uh, last spring, and I think that's one of the things that I think. All the students can breathe a breathe a sigh of relief that this can't this thing can't really, from what we've seen anyway, solve um, difficult problems that at least haven't been solved mathematically. Um, it's been trained on. This is just my my speculation because I, I haven't been involved. I mean, we we put in something and asked, "How were you? How did you get?" this intelligence and it spit out something associated with being trained on massive amounts of information and from the little knowledge I know of machine learning is you can train these things and they can be very good at operating in that domain of where they've been trained Um, but anytime you extrapolate a model outside of its calibrated regime you have to be really careful so when you ask this question about 
can you solve this math problem no one's ever solved? Now you're getting outside of that regime of data that it has no information on. And so it's still going to extrapolate and give you something. And that's where, as being an educated student, you have to then judge is that answer right or, or not. Well, and then we get back to the crux of the matter um, uh, about the importance of soft skills, one of which is uh, just simple. Well, not necessarily simple, but uh, to the point, critical thinking. Um, and I'm not sure if we were, at least this semester, able to really make most students understand why we want them to develop those skills. Um, so that's something we will definitely revisit next semester and going forward and hopefully um, make the expectation and, and, and intent clear from the, uh, from the outset. Um, so, you know, the, if you have, you know, critical questions and concerns um, during the course uh, of a semester that, you know, that's part of what academia is about, is asking questions and, 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 and confronting ideas. So you don't have to take it passively necessarily uh, if, if you're not understanding our intent. We should set something up on the, uh, the website. We technically have a website for the podcast, and I haven't done a good job to updating that. We should put something on there or some way that the students could reach out to us with questions or comments, and we could have like a Q&A uh, podcast at some point oh. on things like that for our two listeners. That well, we, 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 we might want to broadcast a, a live stream and, and, and throw ourselves at, oh my. at, the, at the mercy <laughs> oh my. Of, uh, of live <laughs> commentators and see what we're if if uh, our, uh, our our metal can can withstand the, the comments section. I, I will say this won't be directly part of ME seminar, but we have uh, Mexa another leadership group that provides support for our grad students, but also we're reaching out to the undergrads next semester. And so we have several students that have fellowships, whether it's from NSF, SMART, um, perhaps DOE. I need to go and check the full list. But we plan to have a panel session where they'll talk to uh, junior seniors or perhaps first-year grad students interested in getting these fellowships because they offer some really unique opportunities to do really whatever research you like to do in many cases. And so we want to make sure that all the students know about these and hopefully apply and get them. We did this uh, particularly for the SMART Fellowship a couple of years ago because we we hadn't had any, fam- from my knowledge, there may have been one FAMU student before that, but uh, we had one, the first FAMU female student got one as soon as we brought it up so we hope more of our students will go after those was it really a couple years ago already (sighs) may have been one or two yeah i think so and yeah that's a another initiative we will uh you know we will be focusing more on in in the months to come is uh recruitment and retention uh you know what can we do to make the program more attractive 
to uh, not just all students, but you know, in particular, you know, marginalized students or people from from underserved communities, uh, which is part of the college's mission. Um, so, you know, we are a, a work in progress. Yeah, we we definitely want to reach out to help any student interested in engineering. Uh, and that's not an easy job when you come from very different backgrounds. Again, I think I mentioned in the beginning the perception versus perspective. And I certainly don't have perspective on how a lot of these students, our students, have grown up and the best way uh, to help them. Uh, I'm not a mind reader, but I will open my door to talk to them to figure out, try to come to some kind of agreement on what's the best way to help so if you're interested don't hesitate to reach out yeah i mean the department we we are um not a blank slate but we're one that can be you know continuously uh written upon so (laughs) the metaphor fails sorry um what can i say folks it's it's the uh it's the the last day we're here before the the holiday break. Um, it's getting late. Yeah. yeah. What um so so moving uh, pivoting back to Chat GPT. Uh-huh. What, what what what's the central lesson that you would would hope that your seminar students would take away from this discussion? Uh, I mean, when I first saw it, I thought, oh my, um, are we getting close to this singularity? If you read any science fiction, read Burner Binge. Um, yeah, off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so um it after reflecting on it more, I don't I don't think it's to that point, but it is definitely impressive uh, at least from my perspective on human language processing and how you can write code with these things. Um there there will be the desire or perhaps the crutch if you're not careful to hold yourself accountable to not use this to get to not get better right um instead of putting in the hard work so you get better um using this as a crutch rather than a tool and so i think just in general as in academia to figure out how students can use this tool to get better like i mentioned it's it's very hard to search the entire space of one field to find out what are the key papers that I should be looking at so I don't or my students don't recreate the wheel per se and whatever research we're doing um, using it for those kind of things may be useful um, it'll also take code and you can say will you add comments to this code and so if you want to understand existing code so you can modify it for your purposes it may be a really good teaching tool to help you do things like that. So um, if we try to educate the students on the best way to use it so it helps them, not hinders them, then I, I, I think it could be something of use. But it, it'll take a lot of thinking to figure out where this plays into our academia, our curriculum. Well, it's good to reflect on these um, seemingly you know, abstract um, uh, discussion uh, points. Um, I guess to you, make it, sorry, to make it less abstract, you don't want to say, hey, 
will you write a paper on this topic for my class for Dr. Oates? <laughs> right? That's uh, not going to work out well yeah. for you. Um, well, this uh, feedback that you got that have been, has been sort of the, the focus of um, this conversation, uh, it, it sure um, it sure beats uh, being visited by three ghosts. Um, as far as uh, uh, sort of a, a wake up call for what we need to do going forward, um, I guess the the biggest point to use here to you want to avoid when you think of this AI is you don't want to use this. Um, what was it? The word of the year, and ironically, it wasn't even the word of the year. It was two words: goblin mode. Oh, so I forgot we were going to talk about that. You yeah. don't, you don't want to use this in that situation. That's that's where you start making those early choices that aren't the best for you to stay on the proper path. And next thing you know, you're you're really behind, and you you can't climb out of this hole that you put yourself in. Yeah, I'm actually looking up Goblin Mode right now because that's a okay. So that's um, I had not even I didn't even know what this was. I can't remember where I come across this, but when I saw it, I was like, "What? What is this?" Uh, and it's not even one word; it's two words, which makes yeah. it even worse. Before but we, I guess, appropriate. Yeah, and before we move on to our, our next uh, topic, uh, I did want to talk about that a little bit, just because yeah, this is definitely a new uh, word in my vernacular, anyway. Um, so Wikipedia actually has an article on it now. It's a nice with an illustration of a goblin from an English fairy tale book. Um, goblin mode is a neologism uh, for the rejection of societal expectations and the act of living in an unkempt, hedonistic manner without concerns for oneself for one's self image. Um, that's a lot to unpack. Apparently, it was voted the word of the year by. Uh, some such publication that escapes me now um, and it's something you brought up in a recent <laughs> discussion um, so w- w- what's going on with this uh, it, 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 does this really accurately reflect the state of our of our student body right now what's 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 going on with these kids man yeah, i i don't know and i i can't remember what brought that up within some email exchanges that i had within the department but i i think my knee-jerk reaction was why why was it goblin mode why wasn't it adulting it's my my 18 year old son says yeah i, I hate that word adulting <laughs> yeah i think that is the uh i don't know if that's really the I call it the vaccine, I guess, for goblin mode, but it's the response, I guess, the irritant that, you know, at least some parents, if they're trying to get their kids to uh, take on more responsibility, they're going to do quote-unquote adulting today, fill out forms, go get your driver's license, you know, things like that. And goblin mode is the state when they don't do that? <sighs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, do you feel that you know, two years of COVID isolation and, uh, you know, remote teaching and uh, just general isolation uh, from others maybe has played a role in that. I mean, apparently it's a, it's a growing phenomenon if it's being discussed at scale. Um, yeah. It's something we need to worry about going forward. I mean, I, I, I've, 
I've noticed it in some students, sir. I, know, I, I noticed it in I noticed it in <laughs> uh, some faculty and staff. Uh, this is mm-hmm. not exclusive mm-hmm. to students. Um, it's not exclusive uh, to anyone. It does seem to be a a symptom of uh, society at present now, where it just kind of feel like a lot of folks have just given up. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I do want to tie this into just the the overarching. Uh, Need for uh, you know leadership mm-hmm. and, and 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 soft skills. Um, what's your? Why do you think we're seeing this in a nutshell? Without sounding like a broken record, because I'm sure we've talked about we've touched on this uh, under other umbrella terms. Um, we were, you know, we were hit with this thing, and there wasn't any choice but to stay home and figure it out. Right, and so you really didn't have time to sort out what's the best policy, and so a lot of people realize, oh, I can just work from home and do everything, and so why do I really need to come back into the office? Uh, so I think before that, it was just accepted, and that's something you're expected to do. Um, you know, that's one thing on the side of leadership is you set certain expectations and people are going to follow them. Or if they are going to ask an earnest question, and I I would have to think carefully about at least pre-COVID, if you come to me and how would you put that as an earnest question? Say, uh, ask me, you know, I really don't want to come into the office anymore. I'm just going to, I've heard of this thing called Skype or Zoom. I'm just going to work from there. I say, what are you, are you a crazy man? (laughs) You know, (laughs) pre-COVID, right? So that would have been the, I was like, Neil, are you okay? Um, But now it is totally acceptable. Or if you say, no, I need you in the office every day, say, well, I can go down to this other company and they'll probably pay me more and I can work out of my pajamas. So uh, it's not... It's not just here. I talk with, at least in other academic fields, and they're seeing the same thing. A lot of faculty haven't come back to the office. Um, I think there could be some opportunity cost. You know, often when I walk down the hall or have lunch with someone, there's there's some interesting ideas that come out of those things that you really can't get um, by saying, okay, I want to schedule a meeting with you at this time, and we're going to have an interesting creative idea at 2 p.m. on Thursday afternoon. Um, so there, there's some things that are lost there, and I don't know how to fix that. And it's it's not, you know, our students work hard, so I don't want to say that all our students are running goblin mode. I don't think that's true. No, I don't think that's true either. Um, we, we give them quite a bit of work to do. It's just engineering. It's not a, a easy de- degree to get. Um, but it's a global, at least U.S., phenomenon. Uh, I haven't figured out a good solution to fix it. Yeah, and I'm, I bring this up you know, somewhat um, in jest because it's just amusing to me, the term goblin mode but uh and i don't mean to be dismissive of anyone experiencing that because uh, i i think it's uh, i i think people in that state need 
help and they, they don't need to be derided, they need to be encouraged. Um, but I'm not sure how to reach those individuals. I think that's the challenge. And since we do have, uh, we are kind of in a weird state right now where it feels like we're like maybe halfway back to the pre-COVID mode of, of operating. But it was, a, it was a way of life that was kind of taken for granted in the sense that, um, that yeah, like you said, everyone was kind of on board. We had a set way of doing things, and then that was disrupted. And then there are some people in certain information spheres where you know it it, it is a sound argument that like well, I can I can I can produce more output from home while you know, for instance, without the distraction of constant interruption, which is a valid argument. Um, but then, as you know, there are also um, there are just certain, uh, you know, je ne sais quoi, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what, there are certain variables that factor into the, into the workday that you can't replicate in a virtual setting. And uh, some of it's just the human element of uh, when you're talking to someone face-to-face, I mean, how many written communications have you had with someone uh, that when you speak to that person uh, one-on-one in the flesh... Uh, the in, the takeaway and implications you could hear that it's the same words spoken as, as they are written and it, it have a completely different takeaway because you you lose intonation and this is just one example uh, among other things uh, in that discussion and uh, you know every, people everyone has different uh, uh, different methods for communicating some people are very indirect I know we've talked about this in the past I'm much more of a direct um, communicator, but not everyone is like that. And um, I've heard writing these emails is like when you're writing it, it sounds like a symphony that you're sending someone, and then the person that's receiving it, it sounds like uh, it's just tapping, and that's all you get, right? And so you lose so much information that you think you're sending to them over an email when often your 10 emails into this thing back and forth when if you would have had a face-to-face conversation, it probably would have took 10 minutes to solve. I've had that happen over and well, over. Oh, that was, I think, one of the, the biggest pitfalls of our remote, of our fully remote period from 2020 until uh, I think it was August 2021 when we all, at least the staff and students all came back uh, 100%. And that was uh, certainly a, a, something that, you know, was actually a welcome adjustment because yeah there there were certain uh, action items that you know we would we would be, take you know three to five days to be resolved back and forth over email whereas you just said we we we'd knock it out in fifteen minutes mm-hmm. in person so there was value to that um, but like I said I mean I, I I think that right now we're just in a really weird dynamic because uh, there's certainly a drive to get back to that pre-pandemic level of productivity and just general workflow. But then there's also, uh, you know, disruption of just sort of this new world that we're in because we do still have Zoom. And Zoom is a wonderful technology. It, it really did, in some respects, you know, keep that, that, that uh, 
tapestry of society woven together still when everything had been disrupted. So I don't want to discount the value of Zoom. And, you know, of course, when people travel for work or something, I mean, it's it's a valuable tool. Um, And it's great for, you know, sharing recorded lectures. Uh, The list goes on. So or not traveling, right? Getting on a plane, going to a conference. Sometimes those things are very useful. Um, In other cases, you know, some of the seminar speakers we've had, you can just get on Zoom, and so, often that's how we got Carl Bergstrom. Yeah, for it's almost just as good, right? When it's it's those kind of interactions where it's mainly sharing some information, taking a few Q and A. I hate to ask someone on the other side of the country to, or in Europe or wherever, to fly if it's really that. If if it's a longer visit and you're talking to a lot of people, then yeah, it definitely makes sense. But um, in those situations, yeah. Zoom has yeah. been great, but goblin mode, man, goblin just—it just evokes such a nasty image of you know goblins are, are, are hideous, grotesques in in uh, in our lore, and um, I I was unaware that this was apparently such a large phenomenon that it you know it got such a name and that people. Um, I mean, are people showing up to class in their pajamas or something? I'm, I'm not sure. I, I guess that's always been a thing, but maybe not to the same uh, extent that it is now. Well, I'll, I'll go out on a limb here. So I want to get your thoughts on this theory. So there's some guy on Substack I come across not too long ago, Luke Burgess. And I think he's faculty somewhere, but it's not listed on his... How do you spell his last name? Uh... B-U-R-G-I-S, but he's the author of this, this book called Wanting, Wanting, looking at it now. The Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life. And I, I know he's, I think he's started quite a few companies and uh, been in Silicon Valley and other places. can't remember where he's a faculty, but um, he talks about this, uh, I don't know if you call it a philosophy, but anti-mimetic. And it, it's it's centered around... Uh, an, an older book by uh, a French social scientist, René Girard. And um, I read a few of his articles. I haven't thought about this from this perspective. And, and one of the things that Luke mentions is, I think he was on NPR at one point, and where at some point NPR decided to use uh, all their uh, correspondents were using pronouns at the end of their name, and they they had a, a a link that described why they were doing this, and he was like, "Oh, I'm interested in this." And it was a, a fairly long description, but according to Lukey, it, it was a long description on how they were supporting LGBTQ, which is very important, fine with me. But it, it really didn't explain why they were putting pronouns at the end, and so he was kind of left open, like I still don't quite understand. And the article goes into a lot of other things. And the reason I clicked on it was uh, the article was really about Sam Bankman Freed and uh, FTX crypto. And so he, he talked some about that. And it, it, was, it was an engaging article because he starts out asking this question about, you know, these why people use pronouns at the end of the name or salutation and email. And uh, also... Why did everyone stream Tiger King at the same time on Netflix? And the argument based on this French social scientist is, 
you know, we, we really, you know, we need food, shelter, and sleep. You have to have those things as humans, right? Is there much that we need after that to survive? And the question is the social side of things and you want to be part of a tribe so you want to be that tribe that's streaming tiger king at the same time or you want to be that tribe that has you're supporting the lgbtq so i'm going to put my pronoun at the end because i want to be part of a community to show that i'm supportive of those things or maybe you want to be the tribe that can make money off of crypto right and so I wonder in terms of goblin mode, I want to be that tribe that kind of, I'm going to take a day off. And that turns into two days. <laughs> well, do you think that, yeah, do you think it's just maybe sort of a knee-jerk kind of a sticking it to the man style reaction to just the, the way that we've... Uh, yeah, whether you call it being part of the tribe or peer pressure social or, contagion i think is, a, yeah, is another clinical some, term. yeah that's another one that may be a better description of that but yeah the the peer pressure part of social contagion is um seems like plays into that and monkey I, see monkey do is the yeah, classic so uh, when comparison. you know if you know if you know if you were the one come in the office and the the whole rest of the staff are working from home That'd be a hard sell for me, right? Uh, yeah, no, I mean, that, that is, and that was a, we, we had a similar situation to that for a while. So it, it, it is tough to feel like you're not, it's not even necessarily that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not getting the same perk as my colleagues. It's, it's, it's a feeling of exclusion almost. Mm -hmm. And that stings more than whatever the, um, whatever the, the, uh, exemption from the status quo is it's just this feeling of being excluded which I think is part of why um, a lot of institutions ours included have expanded the whole diversity equity inclusion thing to also include the a B I'm not sure where in the but the B is for belonging interesting and I haven't heard that one it's in our strategic communications um, proposal for the oh, okay okay so it, but that's a that's a it is a relative it's one that I've only seen pop up in organizational culture probably in the past six months or so but um, I think um, I think I'm gonna sound like a broken record here but I think it does come back to leadership and it it's it's hard to make that call to tell people to just you need to come back in the office but one of the things we emphasized I think this semester was we revisited our mission and we we thought about that and wanted to make that um, something set in stone so going forward when we have these things happen you know if you come to me and say hey I want I want to work from home two days a week or whatever um, I'm going to sit down and we'll discuss it and I'll say can we still satisfy the mission uh, can we support our students in the right way? Can we support the faculty? Uh, if we're satisfying the mission, then, yeah, work from home. Yeah, and I'm a big fan of meeting in the middle. I mean, I think meeting people where they are um, is a better way to get a, 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 an improved <coughs> performance out of someone. But you also, at the same time, have to make sure that your own expectations are uh, made known and explicit. And... Uh, 
like you said, I mean, if it satisfies the mission, great. Um, if if it doesn't, then you know that's another conversation to yeah. have. I think that's the part where I was really interested in this guy's discussion on this anti-magmatic because I really thought, oh yeah, I don't really need anything but food, shelter, and uh, sleep. We're men, of course we don't. Like, that's basically, <laughs> well, I can think of one more need, but not one that's appropriate. To, yeah, uh, and to and so then when I'm when I'm trying to help students or staff or faculty. Um, you don't really need anything. Uh, when you the, the bare absolute bare bones, those are the only three things I think you need. Or our two listeners again will correct me on that. But um, so if you don't need those things, how do you make the argument as a leader to do things within your organization? And you just have to go back and look at the mission and say, are we satisfying that based on what you're going to be doing? And so if you don't have that, then everyone is just going in all sorts of directions and you just don't get anything accomplished. So yeah. I think that's that's it for me. Uh, and, and I should <laughs> clarify, too, that you know, our department, uh, at least with our department staff, we do have a, uh, and for us it's one day a week with our, our, our staff uh, work from home uh, arrangement. Um, but it, we are blessed to have staff that are committed to our mission uh, and actually work when they're not in the office, and that we have you know evidence of that uh, in their their output and responsiveness, and we know that they're actually working. But we're also a small operation of five people, uh, you know, serving four hundred to six hundred students, if you, depending if whether you count grad and undergrad together. Um, in a larger um, institution, like say, for instance, Twitter, uh, I can see that being much harder to maintain uh, at that level. Um, which I know is why uh, Elon uh, recently told his employees. Um, actually, this may have been before he acquired Twitter. Uh, that they, I think it was Twitter, though, where he was talking about how they uh, had to, uh, or was it Tesla, where he said that they needed to. to Come to the office and or, or or pretend to work somewhere else. Yeah. Was that the quote? I yeah. think I'm I think you had a good, or clever way of words there, which um, may not have gone over too well. well I think it was Twitter. He's an interesting case study to discuss, though, if we're talking about leadership, because I still can't figure that man out. Is he a good leader or not? I um, I, I I don't know that I would want him as a boss, um, and. If we're going to be assessing the leadership qualities of someone else, he's a great figure because he's he's so well known and his antics are all over the map. Um, he's also has achieved a, a fair deal of well, I'd say more than a fair deal. He's the at this time second world, world's large world's richest person. Um, so he he obviously uh, is doing at least some things right, but. Um, yeah, I don't know that I'd want to work for him because it doesn't seem that he it doesn't seem that he meets his employees eye to eye. That doesn't really factor into his decision making at all. What are, I don't know. What are your it, thoughts on it that? It reminds me of when when I gave the one my perspective on leadership uh, to our students, I had a slide on I I got this from uh, Farnham Street. So I'll I'll go to um, Shane 
Shane Parrish, I think, r- runs that. So he has an interesting podcast and website on decision-making, leadership. And um, so we had this thing on anti-mentor. And uh, I'm, I'm going to forget the other person's name, but it was, uh, I think, a faculty that studied Stoic philosophy. And he was talking about, yeah, sometimes we often talk about finding good mentors, but you also want to think about avoiding anti-mentors. And so when I think about, I'm not, I'm not judging Elon because I haven't worked for him, don't know all the details besides what I see in the news, and it's hard to parse that out. Right. So, um, you know, when you look on the surface, extremely smart, creative. He's created all these amazing companies, rockets, uh, building, selling cars, making cars, mass production is... I did work in automotive at not that scale, and it is non-trivial. It is such a hard, cutthroat um, market to be in. Uh, Neuralink, all the other things, and now uh, Twitter. So you may look at that and say, this guy's really successful. I want to be like that. Um, but then you you have to carefully look at what is the, the game this person's playing, and do you want to be a leader who works with your um, employees in certain ways and you know if if what I do here in the news is is right um, I, I I couldn't I don't know if I could sleep much at night knowing that um, I had to lay off that many people or set those kind of expectations for my faculty um, but that may be what you view as successful. So my, my point is that it's good to judge what kind of game folks are playing to become successful because, um, you know, success on the surface may be very different when you dig down into it. And is that the direction you want to go or not? Um, you have to think about that carefully. Right. And it's also important to note that you know, this person in particular is, is not necessarily self-made when his father has a 50% uh, ownership in a, one of the world's largest emerald mines that might have helped uh, get PayPal off the ground, you know, his initial success. So there is some of that. Um, uh, I'm getting a little off topic. but Speaking of that, so this is kind of coming back, though, to anti-memetics. I remember he made the Luke Burgess made this other interesting argument, not about Elon and PayPal. When you mentioned PayPal, it made me think of uh, Facebook and uh, Peter Thiel. Mm. So when he he was very interested in this, and I think he really understood you want to be part of this tribe. And so when Facebook first come out and say, I'm investing in this because people are going to get attracted to this this social media thing, and you know that's how he built uh, at least a, I think a decent portion of his early investments, and so um, yeah, I, you know it's it's good to start with some some cash to be able to do these things, but then uh, he was pretty successful after that and building it from there. Right. So got to give him that. Well, and, yeah, and, and, and Elon, I think one of his biggest strengths is that of being a salesman. And which is not talk about another soft skill that's important. I mean, you have to. It's not just enough to have good ideas. Uh, it's you know, being able to 
sell them and persuade others mm-hmm. and and that's something that I don't know that we've actually touched on much in our seminars of course I haven't been to all of them so I, I can't but that's something to, to think about because um, you know whether you view them as a success or uh, a failure or something else entirely uh, the man has made waves again mm-hmm. talking about Elon um, you know, but PayPal was completely transformative for electronic, kind of uh, democratizing electronic payment systems uh, and you know, instant wiring of money between individuals. Um, then, of course, Tesla. Uh, you know, without Tesla, I don't think we'd be seeing the transformative shift toward EVs and the emphasis on that that we are today. I mean, it's you know probable someone else would have filled that gap if it wasn't for him but it wasn't it was him yeah. and yeah. and same with you know SpaceX which you know kind of bridged the gap when uh, when, when, when uh, public enterprises like NASA were, <coughs> were, were failing fledgling in the, uh, the early 2000s you know SpaceX uh, even though it is you know, far less developed and, and supported you know financially than NASA was over its you know many decades of operation. SpaceX presented so here, here's a hopeful alternative, and now you have Blue Origin, you have all these other companies that are competing to uh, to, to to keep um, uh, at least the the Western sphere um, engaged in space travel, uh, and they're of course not the only ones doing it, but those are the names people know. So um, there's definitely some material value to what one person can uh, achieve for the world, which, again, ties into the why leadership is important, because you know, uh, whether or not Elon is a, is, a, is a good leader or not, he certainly is a... Uh, he, he's a mover he's, and a shaker. He's a, he's a force to be reckoned with, for sure. Yeah. Um, as far as his... Uh, but as far as his skills at being a, a boss, I mean, I think obviously that's where he, he uh, is lacking. I, I don't know how much you can bang the drum uh, uh, basically screaming at people to be productive um, and, and how long you, that, that can be successful as, as far as tactics go. Um, I think there's better techniques. I mean, I, mean the, I, I suppose you could keep it going, but you'd, it would... It would it does require you to burn out your employees and then replace them continuously, which I think, from a cost you know, effectiveness um, uh, standpoint, is is ultimately actually uh, not desirable because it, we've seen in I mean we see this in academia uh, institutions where there's a high turnover. Eventually, that results in not just lower uh, productive output. But I, I, I think it does. It, it results in the destruction of localized company cultures, which are important for maintaining a sense of identity within any uh, in, any organizational body. Yeah, um, definitely agree. Um, so back to leadership, and uh, we were talking about a little bit about why. Uh, when we were talking about the GPT AI mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and how it relates to uh, integrity, there was another um, headline in the news that we were going to bring up. Uh, do you want to? 
yeah. Do you want me to look it up, or did we did we write anything down about the So you lines? may you may have to bring it up to fact check me on this, but okay. I, I can't remember when I where I saw this, but um, yeah, I, I guess I started thinking about it when you've got this temptation to use these these uh, AI uh, now to write papers. Um, and we're not suggesting this happen in this situation, but I just happen to come across um, at Stanford, I guess, the, the, the president and something associated with some journal papers and altered images were were stated in the news. Yeah. Don't know where that stands, but um, that that was quite unfortunate of, with that. And I've seen it in other places with Alzheimer's research and NIH spending on based on what we thought was credible scientific information, but turns out that may not be the case. Well, and yeah, and in the Stanford president's instance, um, this uh, not only were these these images doctored, but they were doctored in such a way that they actually altered the results of mm. the paper. Uh, and, and some of these are tw- over twenty years old. Some of these papers. Hmm. So the findings have been, you know, it, they've been out there um, and have been part of the aggregate hmm. regarding, in this case, uh, I think it's uh, neurobiology. Okay. So this is is a is a stain on, uh, but I assume to be you know certain findings within that field. And moreover, um, you know, how many hundreds of thousands of, do- of taxpayer dollars have gone toward supporting this man's research, or, uh, research upon which he's the lead author? Um, yeah, and I, you know, I only read this in the news. Yeah, and so don't know the perspective on exactly what happened there, but it it does show you that. I think there's been a much stronger push for validating and verification of a lot of things that are out there. There's, like I said, so many journal papers out there. Um, how much of it is reproducible has, you know, continues to come into question. And so that's another place where I would say in promoting academia is getting degrees where you you understand science or engineering so you can judge these things so you can make decisions when you leave here on where if you are whether working in a research group developing products you can use this information wisely to invest in it and develop systems I'm I'm glad I'm in engineering because I know I'm not Elon but you know, in that case, if you shoot a rocket into space, you know if it's going to work or not. There's pretty quick feedback. <laughs> uh, yeah. Same thing in automotive or you know most engineering systems. Uh, you're gonna you're gonna get quick feedback to know if your design works or not. Yeah, but then you get a field like neurobiology where it's much uh, more ambiguous. It's I guess a lot. Well, it's. It, 
there's not necessarily an immediate visible yeah. uh, you know means of verifying whether or not something works like for instance that the rocket launch is the perfect uh, yeah even a layperson like myself knows if it didn't work you know <laughs> I mean, yeah. like it's immediately apparent yeah. but I don't understand the first thing about uh, about neurobiology and I wouldn't be able to interpret any kind of uh, uh, visualized map uh, Right, thing. but uh, another lab could take that information and try to reproduce it. Right. So it's hard to say what happened there. Well, and that makes me wonder. I mean, that that, that that's the that's what's not really being expounded upon much in these media articles is how did no one catch this sooner? I mean, these were major findings, and if the if the conclusions to these papers were were deliberately articled, I mean, when, when, if they were deliberately altered, excuse me, um, why wouldn't subsequent um, uh, experiments yield different results from it? That wouldn't cause any... Uh, it's hard to speculate on these cases, but since there is so much information out there, often people are generating new ideas, new research questions, were they based on some of this information or not? I guess that's the big question. And maybe it wasn't questioned. Maybe it wasn't questioned rigorously enough. Um, I don't know. That's something we have talked about on this podcast before, is the importance of rigor and thorough investigation. And... um, you know, there is a big in our culture "fake it till you make it" mentality, which it sounds like the president of Stanford took that literally, um, and uh, it's amazing that it's taken supposedly, this, according uh, to the news. Allegedly, we don't know. Yeah, we don't know. But uh, according to this article I'm reading from the actually it's uh, dated today from the San Francisco Standard, there are currently a lot of unrelated scandals going on at. Stanford right now as well and um, I'd like to think that they're all unrelated but you know it does make me wonder um, uh, is some of this uh, kind of a trickle down effect from the impact one gets from the abdication of leadership of central leadership Uh, we uh, just just a rattle off a few um there are apparently some lawsuits related to student deaths which are coming up at the same time uh as uh there were two imposters caught squatting and lurking in student dorms uh on campus there one of which the university had apparently known about for the entire time um and uh i'm sure there's more to that uh, of course, the aforementioned issues with the president. Uh, there were. They're also dealing with um, another lawsuit um, about uh, Stanford programs that violate violate Title IX um, rules, and uh, one of which, and particularly, um, a suit filed by an alumnus claims that the school engages in anti-male discrimination which is another topic that we're not going to get into right now. Um, and then, of course, the most famously in recent weeks, the uh, fallout relating to um, the disgraced crypto uh, mogul Sam Bankman-Fried, uh, SBF. Um, I guess 
his parents were Stanford professors, so it was kind of a, a, um, a breeding ground for. It was kind of an incubator for his uh, his company. Yeah, I don't want to pick on Stanford too much. I'm sure if you dig down, you can always find these things here at FSU or FAMU, and I think ultimately it goes to show that uh, we're certainly not perfect, and there's always, no matter whether it's big or small mistakes, there's there's places where we can look at improving. Um, it's hard to say how things take these turns that they do, but uh, hopefully they sort those things out. I think, um, and one of the reasons I'll have to get going soon, when you mention fake it till you make it, one of the things I'll I'll, I'll put on my my Jocko hat, so i got to get to jiu-jitsu in a few minutes, and, um, you know, thinking thinking about those situations or thinking about chat GPT and using this in the wrong way to try to, think you're uh whether it's think you're gaming the system or you think you're really getting better um i've learned that really quickly in jujitsu and so you know it's not when you go and you you learn some new move they they show you okay here's how you do this defense or here's how you do this submission and after that we don't just walk out and say, okay, if you're at the gas station, you know how to handle yourself at this point. Um, we'll, we'll go through drills and then we'll roll and you got to work to do it to figure out how do you do these moves to defend yourself. Um, because if you just listen or, or think you know how to do this and you leave thinking you have this confidence that you can defend yourself, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. Um, So it's really good feedback. And those are the kind of things, you know, in the classroom, I'm trying to figure out what's the best way to, quote-unquote, submit, choke my students without literally, obviously, doing that so they recognize, oh, here are some places where I need to improve. Here are the places where I failed or made mistakes and let's get those corrected quickly so it doesn't snowball on us. Yeah, you don't want to literally choke them into it. Um, yeah, the... Um, sorry, folks, I had COVID a few weeks ago, and I've, I've, I've got a little bit of brain fog because I had a, a fairly pertinent thought related to what, what well, Dr. Rhodes I guess said. once I said I want to choke out my students, that threw you off. Uh, a, a little <laughs> bit, but... Um, well, no, okay, now I, I got it again. Uh, my brain fog has subsided for the, the time being. Um, you know, it, it sometimes for some students, um, I, I was one of them uh, at one point, that uh, sometimes you actually do, being the, the metaphorical choked out in this case, is sometimes you do have to fail to, to learn from that. Oh, yeah. Uh, and we can't always catch people when they fall. Um, sometimes the most instructive thing for someone is to uh, get choked out metaphorically, yeah. uh, but we don't want that to be the outcome for a majority of students. If we can help it, we'd like to. We would like uh, that uh, hard lesson to be learned in an easier way. And um, 
sometimes the, the only unpainful way to learn that lesson is to observe it in others. Um, yeah, that's usually the uh, easier way if you can take that lesson. Uh, but sometimes, you know, you have to fail, you have to get submitted, um, and that helps with the ego, yeah, being and I, humble. Mm-hmm. I think recontextualizing how we think about failure, too, as like a permanent, you know, devastating thing uh, it can be helpful, too. I mean, it, it, just because you fail once doesn't mean that this is a permanent reflection on your, your ability, of course. Um, you can come back from, from that. You can uh, come back stronger uh, next semester, which is our intent for our own uh, shortcomings. Um, you know, failure can be an opportunity for greater success uh, on a subsequent attempt, and that's always our 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 goal. And um, yeah, again, that's why I like getting these comments back from students, especially the ones where it says, "Where are places that William Oates can improve in his class?" Yeah. and so they they sting a little bit because you know it hits the ego. But after you look at it, you realize, yeah, here are some real places where I can do better in these classes. And without that, um, you, you're just stuck. You're, you're yeah. not going to get better if you don't look at these things and learn how you can improve on things. Well, you, uh, if, you treat, if you step outside of yourself and you know, treat yourself as if you are someone you're responsible for, taken care of. I think that's a quote from Jordan Peterson, but mm. it, it really is. Um, I, I think that's, uh, that's always helped me anyway, uh, regarding that. Now I know we have to wrap it up soon cause you got to get to your jujitsu, but, um, do you, um, I know you, you have a, a Moleskine notebook over here filled with notes. Do you, yeah. uh, is there anything else that we missed that we need to touch on before we, we wish everyone a happy new year? Uh, I I think we've pretty much covered it all. Yeah. Swell. Well, we as I said uh, earlier in the podcast, we are all we we are works in progress. Uh, no one's perfect, including us, especially us. I I would say some days, um, and we're always striving to be better uh, today than we were yesterday. And one percent. Uh, yeah, one percent better every day. And. That's uh, our, our. That's what guides us here at mechanically incorrect. If it was, uh, if we were perfect, it'd be mechanically uh, correct. But that is not the song we sing uh, on this podcast. So with that, um, we hope everybody has a happy holiday, Merry Christmas, uh, and a happy New Year. And uh, we ex- we'll see, we're looking forward to seeing our students again January 9th. We expect to uh, come back stronger than we were this year, and um, hopefully um, we can all you know, get out of goblin mode together. We hope all our listeners have a, a joyous 2023, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks so much, everyone.